As we prepare to spend time in the Word of God, I'm going to invite you to turn in your copy of the Bible, God's Word, to the book of Hebrews, uh, the letter to the Hebrews, one of the books of the Bible, one of the books of the New Testament, and uh, it's the book of Hebrews. We're going to be in chapter 6, and if you are looking for that in one of our pew Bibles, if you don't have a Bible or you don't have an electronic device that has a Bible, you can certainly use one of these in the pews, and it's on page 1063 if you have trouble finding where things are in the Bible, we're page 1063, and I will tell you ahead of time, we're going to be in that lower right corner of the page, uh, just so you know. Uh, and also, if you don't have a Bible, consider that black Bible that's in the pew our gift to you. We want to make sure that people have availability, accessibility to uh, an understandable translation that is readable and yet faithful to the text. And so we, we want to offer that and give that to you. If you don't have a Bible, it's not just for decoration or only worship use. You can keep it. It's, it's our gift. We can certainly put another one in there. Um, but as we get into the text today, um, we are going to be... I'm going to prepare you. Uh, last week was a little bit heavy. This week is heavier. I'm just going to warn you ahead of time because the message that we're looking at is about warnings. And it's about what happens when rejection happens. It's about hopelessness versus hope. And so as we're going to read something that is spelled out in love, out of God's kindness and grace, and preserved and made available to us, I hope we take that with consideration and that we'll, we'll let that weigh upon our heart. And, and just because it may seem heavy and automatically seem like the strong word, we don't just take the I'm alright, I'm out, strong out. We go ahead and listen and see what God would make known in His kindness to us. So, would you stand in honor of the Lord as we read His Word and hear from it? This is Hebrews, the 6th chapter, verses 1-8 through of God's infallible, inspired, inerrant Word made known centuries ago and preserved for us. The Word of the Lord says this, Therefore, let us leave the elementary teaching about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works, faith in God, teaching about ritual washings, laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And we will do this if God permits. For it is impossible... To renew to repentance those who were once enlightened, who tasted the heavenly gift, who shared in the Holy Spirit, who tasted God's good word and the powers of the coming age and who have fallen away. This is because to their own harm, they are re-crucifying the Son of God and holding Him up to contempt. For the ground that drinks the rain, that often falls on it, that produces vegetation useful to those for whom it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it produces thorns and thistles, it is worthless and about to be cursed and at the end will be burned. Let's pray. Lord, as we hear from Your words, sometimes it is easy for our finite human 
experiences and mind to sometimes wonder where the grace is in what you've made known. But the fact that you speak is the fact that it's a testimony to your love. And today, I pray that we are receiving the Word of God as a spoken act of love demonstrated from you to mankind. And that we will also take heart of, of this divine appointment that, that it was no mistake that on this Sunday in 2019, we were here in this specific message, this specific text was being read. That's an act of your love that's placed us for this moment. So while it may be difficult, give us minds to understand. While it may be hard, give us ears to listen. While it may be terrifying, God, give us hearts of peace. And all of us, all of this, point us to You. Lead us by Your truth. Prompt us by Your Holy Spirit. And and help us to trust and obey Your good grace made known to man. In Jesus' name, Amen. You may be seated. Currently, we are in a series going through the book of Hebrews, and we just happen to be in chapter 6, verses 1 through 8 today. That's just where uh, the chips have landed, if you will. I know that's a Baptist church, and chips landed probably is not a good term in a Baptist church, but that is where it is. And today, as we look at this text, we're seeing what is multiplied and amplified throughout the book of Hebrews. And the book of Hebrews is pointing to Jesus and saying, look and see He who is more. He who is greater. He who is perfect. He who is eternal. Who is, he who is far exceeding. Who, he who was and is and is to come. Who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He who endured the cross and, and endured its shame. For the joy that was set before him. In other words, it's saying emphatically, Jesus is better. And anything less that we, we say, I'll settle for, is definitely settling for less. Infinitely less. Especially when Jesus has made himself available to all. And said, this is my kindness to those who will respond to me. Those who will hear the message. And as we look at the book of Hebrews, we're taking time to see what it says. And even when we get to the hard stuff, we're not being like, eh, nobody wants to hear that. Let's just move on to something that sounds nice and fluffy. We need to teach and learn about the full counsel, the full admonishment, the full encouragement and instruction that the Bible gives. And so we're looking to see what it says. But we're also taking the time to see what it means. Because sometimes we'll get to passages and you're like, Wow, that's really difficult to swallow and it's also difficult to understand. I'm not sure I can comprehend that. I'm not sure my past experience or my tradition or culture or family background or spiritual background or church background helps me to really grasp this. So we're going to see what it means from the perspective of the author that God used to pen it and and His original audience and how that relates to us today. And when we see the original intent, the original meaning, it helps us to understand the application in our here and now. And will leave us hopefully in a place where by the time we depart from here today, we're ready to respond and trust what God is saying and leading to us. And what we're ultimately seeing in this, this text of Scripture, if we're just going to put it in one simple statement, one simple goal or aim, is this. Rejecting Christ is what leads to hopelessness. If, if we're bringing it down to one simple statement, it's that. If, if, as hard as it is, it is saying emphatically, if you want hope, don't reject Jesus. 
Because rejecting Jesus is exactly the trajectory of hopelessness. It's the exact goal of rejecting Jesus. is to give a life of hopelessness. And so as we look at this text, I'm going to do a, a vice versa moment here. As it's pointing to what hopelessness looks like, let's look at the, also the hope that the disciple has in difference. The writer of Hebrews is, is not saying, well, this is the only dark message that's available. It's saying this is the option for those who walk away from Jesus, who say, I choose not to follow Him who is the most better, the most best, the greatest, the most perfect. And I know that's terrible English. But it's telling us about this hope that's found in Jesus. What is that hope? Well, first of all, we see the hope that is here, that is found in Jesus, that we are warned to avoid rejecting, is to, to understand that the disciple's life has hope because it has a foundation. Those who are not a disciple of Jesus, those who are not a follower of Christ, they may think they have a foundation, but it's a sandy one. It is not one built on a solid rock, a solid cornerstone. I know those are churchy phrases we use, but it comes from Jesus' parable about the one who listens to Him and the one who chooses not to. In other words, the one who follows Him and trusts Him and the one who rejects Him. The one who rejects him is like a man who builds his house on a foundation of sand. And when the storms of life come, it is gone. It is wiped away. But the one who's built on on a solid foundation, the storms of life, whatever may come, will, will come. And they will beat upon it, but it will stand. And the disciple's life has a foundation because the disciple has said, Jesus, you are worth following. You are worth uh, confessing as Lord, you are worth giving my life to, and, and I don't only want to give my life to you, I want to love you. Because you first loved me. And I, and I want to learn from you because you've given me something to listen to. You, you've given me something to live for. I want to know what you have said because you are worth it, and it's important for me to put it in place. But I've also seen while we may acknowledge that and say, oh yeah, that sounds good, that sounds like what I'm supposed to do, some of us don't really invest the time in listening. Or maybe it's not completely our fault, maybe someone didn't invest the time to help you learn to listen. And so out of active participation, one of our deacons said, I hope you have a different kind of sermon today, you know, after the big breakfast we had this morning, people might fall asleep. So out of the active participation... If you have your little bulletin notepad, whatever, there's a blank page on the back side, I'm going to ask you, to, we're going to do a little pop quiz. We're going to put it on the spot. Because sometimes we think, I know enough. I, I'm good. Me and Jesus, we like that. We're good. But if we're honest, and what we're going to see with this little, this little basic quiz, are we really listening to what God has already spoken and said, this is what you need to know about my revelation through history to mankind. And when I say basic quiz, I mean I pulled this off of a elementary age Bible quiz. Alright, and I'm and I understand. Alright, so here we are. Number one. What are the original languages the scriptures were written in? There are two. Three, there's a little few phrases, but we'll, I'll set the two. 
What are the original languages the Scriptures were written in? And no, the answer is not King James English. Nope, I've heard it said it was good enough for Paul, it should be good enough for us, but sorry. Number two, how many books are there in the Bible? How many books are there in the Bible? The Bible is a collection of books. And this is also no cheating. It is the Lord's day and the Lord sees all. So don't open your table of contents or your list on your device and count. And just as an additive, uh, if you want to divide it out, how many are in the Old Testament and the New Testament? And yes, this is a question our Awana kids know. Three. Where did God give Moses and the Israelites the Ten Commandments? What geographical location? Where, where did, was that? Four. Where did Jesus walk on water? I know that Christian fellowship and looking upon one of those notes might be uh, something you may be doing at this point, but I'm trying to really challenge all of us. I just think it's funny too. What book of the Bible, number five, what book of the Bible gives us a description of the armor of God? Six. What... Which book and chapters has the Sermon on the Mount recorded? <laughs> yeah, the D group's like, hey, we're memorizing that! Which is amazing. Memorizing the entire Sermon on the Mount. It's awesome. But it is possible when God's people get together. Seven. How many people were saved aboard the ark? Number eight, what person is quoted as saying, if I perish, I perish? That one's a little harder. I get it. Number nine, what person said, he must increase, but I must decrease? Number 10, who prophesied unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given? Number 11, where did Jesus grow up? Number 12, who were the first three Israelite kings? Number 13 is a fun one. What type of animal did Balaam ride? By the way, that was a hint from last week's sermon. 14. Which of Jesus' miracles is recorded in all four Gospel books? Which one miracle is mentioned in all four Gospel books? 
15. What book and chapter has the Ten Commandments? Sixteen, what person lived in Ur and was called to go to a land that he did not know? Seventeen, what? I'm going too fast. I've got a time crunch here. Well, you just have to write the answer. You don't have to write the question. Just write down the answer. 17, who led the Israelites into the promised land? Three more, three more. 18, who did God use to show Peter that God shows no favoritism and that he accepted both the Jews and the Gentiles? 19. What book of the Bible describes the salvation of three Hebrews from the fiery furnace? 20. And there's no bonus points, but I mean, if you knew the names of those three Hebrews, that would be pretty good. 20. The last one. What disciple found a golden coin in the mouth of a fish? Alright, you ready? Let's see how many did. Let's see how you got. I'm going to... This is a basic Bible quiz. And, and I have a point to this. This is not made to make anybody feel bad or judged or anything like this. This is what the, the answers are. Number one, what are the original languages the Scriptures were written in? Greek and Hebrew. Old Testament is Hebrew. New Testament is Greek. Two, how many books are there in the Bible? 66. 39 in the Old Testament. 27 in the New Testament. Three, where did God give Moses and the Israelites the Ten Commandments? Mount Sinai. Very good. Number four, where did Jesus walk on water? Sea of Galilee. Alright. What book of, number five, what book of the Bible gives us a description of the armor of God? Ephesians. Um, which book and chapters has the Sermon on the Mount? Matthew 5 through 7. Um, how many people were saved aboard the ark? Eight. Eight, right. Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their three wives. Alright. Um, how many people? Um, eight. What person said, if I perish, I perish? Esther. Esther. She was going before the king and said, I will go even though it's against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Uh, nine, what person said he must increase, but I must decrease? John the Baptist. Very good. Number 10, who prophesied unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given? Isaiah. Alright. Number 11, where did Jesus grow up? Nazareth. I heard in the back row. The back row does pay attention. Alright, here we go. Number 12, who were the first three Israelite kings? It was David's son. Very good job. Solomon. There we go. But Saul, David, and Solomon. Those were the first three Israelite kings and the only kings to rule all of Israel. Uh, after that, the kingdom split. 
Uh, 13. What type of animal did Balaam ride? A donkey. Alright. What's that? Yeah, alright. 14. Which of Jesus' miracles is recorded in all four of the Gospel books? The feeding of the 5,000. Alright. Which book and chapter has the Ten Commandments? Exodus what? Exodus 20. Exodus 20. Alright. Hey, at least you knew Exodus. That's, that's good. Alright. 16. Who lived in Ur and was called to go to a land that he did not know? Abraham. Technically, it was Abram, and he was later named Abraham. But, uh, you know, actually, you know, you know, everybody hates that. Uh, alright. 17. Who led the Israelites into the promised land? Joshua. Alright, 18. Who did God use to show Peter that God shows no favoritism and they accepted both the Jews and the Gentiles? What? No. Cornelius! There we go. Directly in chapter 10. I now know God shows no favoritism. That's what Peter said as a result of it. Uh, 19. What book describes the salvation of the three Hebrews from a fiery furnace? Daniel, alright. Um, and what disciple found a golden coin in the mouth of a fish? <laughs> no, no, it was Peter, it was Peter. Alright. So you may ask why I, I have these. These are considered elementary questions. And these are something that if we're really honestly hungering for the Bible, these are kind of little novelty moments that we're going to pick up. If we're constantly spending time in God's Word, we're going to be again learning these things. Oh yeah, Abraham. He was the guy who lived in a foreign place and God called him. He wasn't yet a Jewish person. There were no Jewish people. He was just a Mesopotamian man and God, in His favor, said, I want to demonstrate my grace upon you and use you to bring up a nation. We're going to find these narratives out. We're going to hear about these things more than just like a little golden book narrative. You know, I love the little golden books. You guys might have grown up with the little golden book Bible stories. But if that is the limitation of your Bible knowledge, I would encourage you, I would push you very strongly with joy and excitement. Get into the Word. There's so much more. And it is all good. It is all needed for us to grow in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. It's good for us to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Now, the disciples... Here, that's writing in the book of Hebrews. He makes this statement though that seems a little contrary to what I just said. That we're to spend time in the Bible getting to know even elementary facts. He says, you know, leave these elementary things. And, and we may think, what is he saying? That these things of repentance and faith and baptism and, and laying on of hands and, and the resurrection and, and eternal things at the end, those, those don't matter? No, he's saying those are basic. Those should be things that every disciple has come to a point that, that they see as Jesus has made known who He is to them, that they grasp an understanding. And those are such foundational elements in our life that we're to build on them, not try to reconstruct them. He says what's happening is there are people that are trying to renegotiate their Jesus and, and make Him lesser than He is. And they have no understanding of the, the real basic foundation of the Gospel. And so in doing so, they're returning back and saying, well, 
I don't like the way this is out. Let me, let me fix something else. Or I don't really get it. I'm just keep working on the foundation and all their houses is only foundation. There's never anything built or produced from it. And says so there comes a point where we as disciples have come fixed to the conclusion with confidence. Jesus is who he says he is. Jesus has done and promised and is sufficient to complete what he has said he has done. And Jesus is worth following in my life. And so from this foundation that He made, I'm going to live my life and build as He would lead. That my whole life is not just fixed on this and trying to rework this and trying to figure this out and, and this kind of thing. It's, it's God saying, I've already shown you what it is. Learn from it and grow. Build upon what I have provided. These are necessities for our life that we are to know them. We're to, to grow in them, but we are also meant to build from them. That they are meant to be the very items in our life that move us towards service and ministry. That move us on in growing in discipleship. That move us on in teaching. And that are meant to push us forward if we are in the faith. Earlier in this letter, the, the writer has said, by now, you ought to be teachers. You're still having to be taught as infants. You're still dealing with the elementary. Now, there's nothing wrong with teaching elementary age kids, but the thing about teaching elementary age kids, guess what you got to do? Pete and repeat. We're fishing in the lake. Pete fell in. Who's left? Repeat. Yes, you have to repeat over and over and over again. Because they're still getting that point like, I'm still grasping the roots here. But there comes a point in adulthood where we expect people to pretty much understand I don't have to repeat to you 2 plus 2, right? It's there. And building on that, if you have that, you are able to teach all kinds of ages. You're able to help other people. Because at that point, you've, you've came to the point of understanding repentance and faith. That the coming to Jesus is, is not an easy believism where we just go, uh-huh, at the right time walk and take a step at the right time, get splashed at the right time, and put something in an envelope at the right time. That is not what repentance and faith are. Repentance and faith, repentance is an about face to where our life was going the way we thought we knew we were meant to go, but God made us recognize that that life was a life of idolatry, a life of sin, a life of rebellion, but in His grace, with the sign that's up there, He says, this is what I'm making known to you. Now turn and follow me. When the Bible says all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, it wasn't like, oh, we just kind of slipped and stumbled and tripped. No, it was because our life was aiming at the wrong target completely. It wasn't even shooting in the right direction. And repentance is turning to Him. And then faith is not just, uh-huh, okay, I filled out a piece of paper. Faith is an utter dependence. I've used this illustration before. I can say, man, this looks like a good steady pew. It looks good. But that's not an act of faith. It's really not. It's just a statement. If I say, man, that's a good solid pew. I can feel it. That's pretty good. That's still not an act of faith. I may be trying it. This is an act of faith that I'm getting up on this pew and it's holding me. I know I'm doing something you shouldn't do in a Baptist church and we teach our kids not to. But this is what it is to put our hands in Jesus. To say, I'm not only doing, "Uh uh-huh, I'm not only doing, that looks good, but I'm saying my life is in your hands. It was once going this way, now it's yours. And so, 
this is the, the life that we're telling people that we're not saying you need to become the member of the right church or give to the right charity or believe in the right way of, of, of this point of view. It's saying your life without Jesus. You may think it has hope. You may be fooled into it. But all the signs of the Bible are saying it's a life of idolatry and rebellion. And you need to turn and follow Jesus in faith. You need to, as an act of receiving that faith, demonstrate it with this ritual that, that we tell all disciples to, they had the ability to make public. As a believer, you're saying, I am making what is personal public in baptism. I am making it known that I, I have placed my life in the hands of Jesus and He took it out of the depths of death and brought it to life. And now I walk in the newness of that. I believe in praying and laying on of hands because I believe if God could change my heart, then I want to pray for God to work in the lives and hearts of others. If God could turn a sinner like me to Him, He could turn anyone. That's why I believe in prayer. He can change and make what we think is impossible possible. That we understand that the resurrection is something that is complete in Jesus. That it's not something we have to have Jesus plus this to earn the resurrection. No, He says, I hold that complete for you. I sustain it. And that resurrection from the dead also includes eternal judgment. That we understand about heaven and hell and that our greatest hope of heaven is the Jesus that's there. And the greatest, the greatest tragedy of hell is the Jesus who is not. A place absolutely devoid of God's goodness, but completely full of God's wrath. You see, the disciple has this foundation, and, and if you can build on those principles, man, you could carry the message of Jesus anywhere. Because those are the central aspects that God says, carry that with you and build on it. Don't try to keep coming back and figuring it all out. Take that, that God in His grace has made known to you, and build on it. Because every disciple has that good, solid foundation. Whenever they trust in Jesus, when they give their life over to Jesus, they say, this is what's there. The disciple's life is also about transformation. It's about doing and growing as God would lead us and permit in us. That we learn from the gospel foundation as it's been laid, but we also live through it. That, that God says, if, if He prevent, permits us to have another day, I do nothing. I do absolutely literally nothing to make my heart beat again. I can voluntarily breathe in and out whenever I think about it, but there's plenty of time throughout my day I involuntarily do that. There's nothing that I do that adds to it. I may try to exercise to make sure it keeps doing it, but I can't force it to do it. I just can't. But if God permits and He continues to give me life, I want to live that faithfully to Him. That's the goal of my life, to, to say, this is the foundation that Jesus has laid in my life. Now from there has been a transformation that my life is no longer built on any shifting sand. It's not a, a jalopy on a hill. It's a work in progress of His goodness made known in me. And I will follow Him as long as He gives me breath in my lungs, as long as He permits. I will follow His way. And where He does not permit... With that license of saying, we will do this if God permits, it's allowing me to let God say no to me. Because God didn't permit it. And I can be good with it. How many of us are in that place of transformation with the Lord? That if Jesus told you, looked you in the face for everything you wanted, He said, no! 
you would say, you know best. Praise be the Lord. That's where we need to be. That's where transformation comes. That, that God as a Father who is looking at us and wanting the best for us, the safety of us, the holiness of us, can look at us and say at times, no, my child. And say it with force. And we recognize it as an act of love. Even though it may break our heart, we recognize it as an act of love. This is the disciples' life, the hope that we have. We have someone that would actually care enough to say no, my child. Follow after me. Based on what I've done for you. Thirdly, the, life's, the disciples' life requires regeneration. In the Baptist church, you hear a lot of language about being born again. That sounds like really churchy language, but it's really the language of the New Testament. It's the language of Jesus. That you must have new birth. You must be born a second time. You must be, have, be a new creation. There must be what is a, this part of salvation is called regeneration. That, that you are not someone that's just merely, how do I put this the right way? A Sam's Club sampler of the faith. I am a avid Sam's Club sampler. I love Saturdays. Because I will go around and I will taste everything they have, even if I know I will not like it. I will taste everything. And I might even return pretending I have a split personality. But here's what seems to be the constant about that. These people that are there, they're in their kindness making these things, they're preparing, they're cooking up, it smells so delicious and so good. And they'll say, we have this on sale, and I will take the sample and I'll be like, oh, that's really good. I really like that. I ain't buying it. It ain't going home with me. It's not becoming a part of my repertoire. It's not. Why? Because I was merely there to sample. I wanted a little bit of the taste of the good. I wanted to enjoy the environment and the scenery. But I didn't want to buy in. I didn't want to put my money where my mouth is. And see, this is the place of regeneration where we come to, to God doing all this work and Him making Himself known. And He says to all who received Him, He gave them the right to be called children of God to those who believe in His name. The receiving of Him. It's not where we just come and say, hey, I want to just give me a little sample. I, I like the good environment. The music's kind of chill. I, I like the, the style. I, I like the taste. Man, you got bacon back there in the back room. But I don't want to commit. I don't want to surrender. I don't want to be born again. I like my life quite where it's at. And there are many people that get caught up in being the Sam's Club style sampler in Christianity. And they wonder why their life has no roots. And they wonder why there's no hope. That the direction of their life is not one of being born again, but dying constantly. how they may find themselves easily just walking away as if it's no big deal. I don't need to know that. I don't need to buy in. That this is the level I'm good with. This far and no more. And the writer here in Hebrews 
is saying those who live this life. He's using hyperbole here. But he says it's, it's impossible. There's nothing we can do on our part if, if that's where the person has found themselves, that they are experiencing all the witness of God. Of all His testimony being made known to Him. All of His goodness. They've been able to sample it and take it in. To witness it. It becomes like a hyperbole. It's, it, it, it's just almost impossible. It's just, just as near because there's nothing we can add to it. Because none of us can coddle anybody into the kingdom. None of us can force and pigeonhole anybody into the kingdom either. That is an absolute work of the Lord between them. All that we can do is make the Lord known and see the Lord work. But if God doing all that and the person still not yielding, seeing all the evidence, the, the, the kindness of God, all these, these evidence, His signs that this is who I am, it's loud and clear, and yet you will not do this. It becomes utterly impossible for those who have once experienced to take that next step. And this is why the writer is saying this possibility of apostasy. He's saying it's the possibility that you would see somebody that, man, it looked like they just enjoyed, they were living it up, they, they wanted to be a part of the scene, they saw it, and were like, wow, that's awesome, that's good, I like that. And then disappear. This is why it's possible. But then he gives the picture of it. That the life of the follower of Jesus is meant to be cultivating something good, something fruitful, something bountiful. That your life is not purposeless, pointless, or futile. But the life that is produced through the one who is not regenerated, the picture is that of thistles and briars. And that which will be cursed and at the end burned. There's a warning that this, if this is the life that persists. If someone does not open their eyes and bend the knee and see King Jesus and say, I want Him. I need Him. Only Him. I'm no longer the sampler. I receive Jesus. Their life produces, but without that, the one that doesn't, the one that ultimately rejects Jesus, they may have gotten close, but they did not trust Him. They did not place their faith in the end, we'll be burned. That's why I can say emphatically the point of this statement is rejecting Jesus is what leads to hopelessness because that's the end. It's the end nobody wants to talk about. It's the, it's the end that no one wants to discuss when you talk about the, the wrath of God that was poured out and is consistently poured out in a place called hell. But that's it. But that is not how we have to be. Because the disciples' life is all of these things. It's about foundation. It's about transformation. It's about regeneration. But here's where it comes. It blossoms through true salvation and sanctification. Why is that? Because it drives us to the cross. The message of the cross. And and we put this up and talk about it pretty much every week. About the Gospel. About the fact that there is a God in His character who is holy. Utterly holy, awesomely holy, righteous and good in all that He does. But the problem that arises in the offense of our sin, the Bible says there is not one good among us. Not anyone that's in your neighbors right now. Not anyone that you ever come across or will come across aside from Jesus. The offense of our sin 
is offensive to a holy God. And being God, He's the one that has all the say. And what does He say about it? He says, let me do something about it. A life that produces thistles and thorns that is not good, what will I do about it to save that? So that in the end, it is not cursed and burned. Here's what I'll do. I'll take on flesh. I'll live the life in their place and I'll die the death in their place. And so on that moment, for six hours, for every single person who trusts in Jesus, every ounce of the wrath of God for you that have believed was poured out on Him. Every single ounce of it that was due for you for eternity, it was felt by Jesus. That's the hope. That's the sign that says, this is how I love you. And then the Bible goes on to say, but this is not just some easy believism. It is for those who receive Jesus. See, there's a personal responsibility in the Gospel. How many times that God has stirred your heart or warmed your heart and awakened you to the knowledge of Him, if you do not follow through in faith and receive Him, salvation is not there. You must receive Him. The Bible makes this responsibility adamantly clear. And when we do, our very eternity has changed. There is a a destination that awaits us that the Lord, the King of glory, resides there. And that's what makes heaven worth it. The default direction of our life has changed. We're no longer going to this place where we're just useless thorns and thistles and briars. But our life is also born again. There's a new life where there wasn't once life before. There's transformation that it begins to occur as we grow and produce as God wants us to produce. And there's a foundation that never, ever can be shaken. Why? Because the disciples' life, it blossoms through true salvation and sanctification. Something that God opens our eyes to, that we respond to, and He continues to work through and sustains us. Today is a warning about rejection. Because I want you to know Not following Jesus is a path that leads to hopelessness. But I want you to know over and abundantly the good side of that coin is that when you follow Jesus, there's hope upon hope. A hope that never fails. A hope that never ends. A hope with a foundation. A hope that transforms. A hope that gives us new birth and sanctifies us daily. Let's pray. Everybody knows I'm wrapping up because they're already like, I hear it. Lord God, I'm thankful for our people that know me. And I'm thankful more than importantly for people that know you. And I know in a room this size with this many people there, it is possible that there are people that do not know you. Either they're still in the very beginnings and have lots of questions and have never placed their faith in you. But it could also be possible that there are people like the book of Hebrews is describing. People that were among the church. That are living a Sam's Club sampling type of Christianity. They have not received you, Jesus. So I don't know what you want to do in this moment, Jesus, because I'm not you. But I know that you have given this time as a time to save, a time for peace with you, a time of response, a time so that people may have everlasting hope. So God, I'm praying that in this moment of response, as you would lead your church, you would lead them in a way that points them and gets them closer to you as they take that next step. And where we can help anyone who has questions, God, Lead them to ask. Lead them to follow. Lead them to trust. And it's in your mighty name we pray. Amen.